My favorite TV show right now is about cartoon dogs. Uh, if you have a young kid or grandkid, you have probably heard of Bluey. Uh, it is a phenomenal show. It's so good that I want to write a book called The Gospel According to Bluey. It'll be a bestseller, I'm sure. Uh, if you don't know, it features a family of Australian blue healers who are working through very normal situations that every family experiences. So in one episode, the dad asks his daughter Bluey to clean up her toys. And Bluey whines, but why do I have to? Which is a phrase I think every parent has heard in exactly that tone of voice. Uh, the dad tries to motivate Bluey to obey using a variety of tactics, uh, rewards. What if I give you stickers to tidy up? Ooh, that could be fun. Or intimidation. Come on, Bluey, just tidy it up. Or logic. Well, if you don't tidy it up, then who will? But none of these strategies work, and Bluey keeps asking, but why should I do it? But at the end of the episode, Bluey helps her dad with another task, and when dad thanks her honestly... Bluey realizes that doing what her dad tells her to do helps her feel more connected to him. And so the point of the whole episode is that there are a lot of bad motivations for obedience, but the best motivation is a relationship. It's the bond between a loving parent and a listening child. Now let's put this idea in the context of a person wondering why they should do what God tells them to do. Have you ever wondered that yourself? Have you ever talked to somebody who asked that question? Why should we obey God? There are a lot of bad answers that we could supply. Maybe you've heard some of these taught either outside or inside the church. Uh, one common answer is that we should obey God in order to be saved, to be forgiven from our sins and given eternal life. This is the legalistic, rewards-based approach. Uh, do good things, and then you will be compensated accordingly. A similar answer is that we should obey God to avoid going to hell. This is your get-out-of-jail-free card. Uh, this is the fearful, intimidated approach. Do good things because otherwise you'll be punished. And the third answer that I hear a lot, especially recently, is that we should obey God because it will be good for human flourishing. It, it will create an environment of goodness and love. This is the humanist, logical approach. Do good things because it will make the world a better place, which is a remarkably human-centered way of viewing things. And all three of these capture a part of the truth, but the biblical answer to why we should obey God is so much richer and deeper. See, the God who made our hearts knows what motivates our hearts, motivates us to obey. Turns, he knows what transforms duty into delight. And just like that episode of Bluey, it all comes back to the relationship between you and your Father in heaven, the one who created you, who knows you, who loves you, and who commands you to obey him because he loves you. See, in the letter of 1 Peter, the apostle has a surprising answer to this question. Why should we obey God? Or another way to ask the question is, why should we be holy? It's not the legalist, the fearful, or the humanist answer. No, why should we be holy? Peter's answer is one word, hope. We have hope. Because Christians are people who are characterized by hope, we are people who do, God, who do what God tells us to do. I know that's unclear right now. How do those two things connect? But just sit tight. It'll make more sense as we walk through the passage. But before we get there, we need to see where Peter has gone so far. So, so far in the letter of 1 Peter, we've seen how Peter is writing to those whom he calls chosen exiles. 
Christians who are both beloved by God and not at home in this world. We are born again to a living hope. We're given a promise of a glorious inheritance when Jesus comes back. But until then, we suffer. You may remember that last week, Pastor Kyle taught on how even terrible trials and sufferings can be used by God to grow us and to strengthen our faith. And now Peter is going to transition. Notice the word therefore in verse 13. This is a hinge. He's going to transition from talking about what God has done for us to then how should we live right now. And as we've already said, it's all about our relationship with God, how the gospel shapes both our hope and our holiness. So as I, as I was praying for you this morning, this was what was on my heart. These verses are for you if you feel far from God and disconnected from him this morning. These verses are for you if you are caught in sin. It feels like no matter what you do, how hard you try, you just cannot obey God. You keep failing. These verses are for you if you don't care about serving God, doing what he says. You just want to do what you want to do. And these verses are especially for you if you need hope this morning, if you feel beaten down and broken by the just futile inevitability of life. So if you're taking notes, this is my simple summary of Peter's big idea. This is the one thing that I want you to take with you this morning. Because we have hope, we must be holy. Because we have hope, we must be holy, or to put it in an even pithier way, Peter is calling us to hopeful holiness. And of course, we need to define those terms. What does hope mean? What does holiness mean? We'll we'll get there. This section of the letter can be divided into three parts. First, the command to hope in verse 13. Second, the calling of holiness in verses 14 to 17. And then finally, the celebration of salvation from 18 to the end. So we'll take those one at a time. Let's, let's look again at verse 13. This is the command to hope. Verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. A quick grammar, pop quiz, what is the main command of this verse? Set your hope fully. Set your hope fully. That's the central command of this verse. It's also the central command of this whole section. Everything flows from that. Hope fully. But before that command, we get three qualifying phrases. First, as we mentioned earlier, therefore points back to all that Peter has just said. In light of the living hope to which we are born when Jesus saves us, in light of the future inheritance that he will give us that is certain and sure, in light of God's goodness to us, even in the midst of our suffering, because of all of this, hope. The second qualifying phrase is preparing your minds for action. You, you might have a footnote down at the bottom that says that in the Greek, it's literally girding up the loins of your mind. You know it's a good day when you get to say the words girding your loins from the pulpit. Um, it's great. In, I even have a graphic that I found on how to gird your loins in case you were wondering. In cultures where people wear long robes, uh, they hike them up and they strap them in uh, whenever they need to do something active. So we have the 
phrase, roll up your sleeves. It's a little bit less graphic. Uh, that's the idea. Uh, but notice what Peter is applying it to. He's not saying, gird up you know, your physical bodies. He's saying uh, he's applying it to the mind, which in the Bible doesn't mean just your intellect, what you think with. It means your whole demeanor and attitude and will. It's like the philosopher Scar says in The Lion King, be prepared. You know, that's, that's the idea that he's going for here. Finally, the last qualifying phrase is being sober-minded. Uh, this is the opposite of being drunk-minded. It refers to clarity, self-control, and focus. So, because of all that God has done for us in salvation, because of all that God is doing right now in our suffering, while you get yourself ready and focused, devote all your attention, all your energy toward one thing. It all funnels down to this, hope, hope fully. And now we ask, hope in what? This is where the verse goes. Hope in the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the future second coming. Remember last month when we were looking at the book of Revelation, at what will happen when Jesus returns. This is what Peter is referring to here. Now, the word hope is often misunderstood in the Bible because the way that we use the word hope normally uh, means something that is desired, but it's uncertain. I hope I get the promotion. I hope she has a safe trip. It's a desired thing, but it's uncertain if it's going to happen. But when the biblical authors use hope, they use it to mean a confident expectation based on God's past faithfulness. I know that this will happen. I don't know when it'll happen, but I know it will happen. Why? Because God keeps his promises. He always has. And so right now I'm waiting with confident expectation. Have you ever considered how few things in life are 100% sure and certain? Like there are things that are 99% sure and certain. But how many things are actually, honestly, no matter what, 100% this will happen? Your car is probably going to start tomorrow morning until it doesn't. Your job is stable until it isn't, and you couldn't have foreseen it. Your relationship is steady until it hits rocks that came out of nowhere. Your health is good. You're physically well until you're not. I have a keen awareness of this every time I preach uh, because I have a massive wooden cross hanging above my head, and I am very sure, 99% sure in the screws that are holding it up, but if the Lord wanted to take me home, he would have a very easy way of doing so. Um, And now I'm going to be, you and I are both going to be distracted the whole sermon just thinking about that. Um, It's an uncomfortable thing to think about, just how fragile life actually is. And most of the days, we don't have to worry about it because life is usually very steady. But as Kyle described last week, there are other times when we are faced, we are forced to face the fragility of life, times of tragedy or disappointment or loss. It just shatters our illusions of safety. The author of Ecclesiastes said that life is hevel, it's smoke, it's vapor, When we put our confidence in impermanent things, Jesus described it like building a house on the sand that just slips through your fingers. Don't you long for something solid, solid, 100%, not not 95%, 
but 100% sure? Don't you want a promise that can never be broken? Don't you wish for a hope that is living, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading? That is what Jesus offers you, Christian. What are the last words of Jesus in the Bible? I am coming soon. Surely I'm coming soon. It's going to happen. He'll never be delayed. His appointment with you will never be canceled. And when he comes back, he brings with him not judgment for those who are in him, but grace, unmerited favor from his loving heart. So Peter says, roll up the sleeves of your mind, stay focused on one thing, the confident expectation that Jesus is coming back. So what would this look like in your life this week, Rock Hill? How often do you remember and rejoice in the knowledge that you will see the gracious, smiling face of Jesus soon? Could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be when you die, it could be a thousand years from now, but it's sure, it's definite, it's certain, it's guaranteed, it is finished. So take seriously Peter's words to prepare yourself, to be sober-minded, to devote yourself to this hope fully. What would happen if you developed the habit of your first prayer in the morning, the moment you open your eyes, or, or the last prayer at night when you close your eyes? Maybe it's in every prayer, Jesus, you're coming back. What if that was how you ended every prayer? In the name of Jesus, who is coming back soon, amen. What if you ended your mealtime prayers with, Lord Jesus, come quickly, because we want to eat with you? What if you took an inventory of all the things in your life that you put your confidence in that are not really certain at all. You thought they were 100% certain, but if you're actually honest, you know they're not. They could fade away like that. And when you're in free fall there, realizing I have nothing to stand on, hear the words of Peter that you do. You have a sure hope. Jesus has saved you, and he's coming back. Christians are people of hope. Paul Roman wrote in Romans 12 that we are to rejoice in hope. The psalmist in Psalm 42 exhorted his downcast soul to hope in God despite his circumstances. As the author of Hebrews says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We are people of hope. But this raises a question. Are Christians just future-oriented people without any concern for the here and now? Like, are we the, the guy on the street corner with the sign that says the end is near, but we don't care about the present? Are we just kind of waiting idly for the second coming, ignoring the world with our pious inactivity? By no means. Remember our big idea. Because we have hope, we must be holy. So we've seen that command to hope. Now let's look at the calling to holiness. Let's read verse 14 again. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In the pagan religions of the first century, the gods were not known for their goodness and self-control. They were not holy gods. Zeus slept with anything that moved, and Thor fought with anything that moved, and so on. Uh, they followed their passions and their pleasures, whatever occurred to them in the moment, and their followers were taught to do the same. 
But Peter says that our God is different and distinct, and so are we. Uh, the most popular meaning of holiness is, is set apart. And so we, when we talk about God's holiness, his set-apartness, we mean his unique and pure perfection. He is not like anything else because he's better. He's like the sun, which has an intense heat and radiant purity that affects everything it touches in our solar system. And what's more, this holy God is our Father. We just sang that in the song. Who else could call him Father? Only our holy God, and we are his children. Now, this quotation from Leviticus 11 that Peter cites, you shall be holy, for I am holy, it, it isn't like Santa Claus scolding, he knows if you've been bad or good, so be good, for goodness sake, you know, that vague threat. Uh, no, this is a father teaching us how to have his family likeness. You're part of my family now, kids. Let me show you what it means to be a part of my family. When you show me, how, let me show you how to live. So for us to be holy is for us to be separated from our sin and our former selfish lives so that we are wholly devoted to the one who saved us. To live as holy means to orient everything around your life, not around the world's definitions of right and wrong, not around your own definitions of right and wrong, but around God's. It's submitting your identity, your aspirations, your autonomy, your career choices, your family, your sexuality, your money, the way that you speak, the way that you act. Everything is submitted to what our Father says is right and just and good. This is what it means to be part of God's family. We have a family inheritance waiting for us when Jesus returns, and right now we're living out who we are. We're kids following in the footsteps of their dad. Peter says in verse 14 that formerly we were ignorant of how to live. Human beings just do what they want, really, at the end of the day. They're conformed or obeying to whatever passions and urges and desires lead us along. We like to imagine ourselves that we are the masters of our fate and our destiny. That's kind of the modern lie is that if I do what I want, I'm becoming self-actualized. I'm becoming who I really am. But if you became a Christian later in life, you probably know what that was actually like. I've heard a lot of your stories. It usually goes like this. I was basically living for myself without purpose, just following the whims of money or sex or power or addiction or status or whatever else my heart wanted. I wasn't the master of my fate. I had gods that I worshiped. They just weren't the living God. But now I have a new calling. I have a new way of living. I have a new father who saved me. So Christians, we still feel passions and desires, but we're not slaves to them. Rather, we're conformed into the image of our holy God. Peter tells us more about this father in verse 17. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. See, there's an intimacy to the calling to holiness. I've just been using that familial language. We're children imitating our father. But Peter also reminds us that there's a sobriety and a fearful reverence because God is a holy judge who sees our hearts, who knows our thoughts, who weighs our actions. Of course, Peter is not suggesting that our salvation is based on works. As we'll see in a moment, we are forgiven and offered eternal life based on Christ's deeds, not ours. But I think Peter's point here 
is that our conduct, our habits, our way of life reveals what we really believe. Jesus said that you can recognize good and evil by their fruits. If someone lives an unholy life, has no fear of God, is conformed to and governed by their passions, who lives not as an exile in the world, but no differently than anyone else, but they say that they're a Christian, we would have to conclude from their pattern of life that they have no hope in God. The title of Christian doesn't make you holy just because you say you are. Rather, it's the salvation that God offers you. Remember all those bad motivations for holiness that we were talking about? Peter's pointing us to those and saying, those aren't enough. What you need is the grace that Jesus offers you, the grace of a Father who loves you. Only that will save you from the judge. The grace that God gives us in the past, the grace that he's going to give us in the future, that's what gives us a new identity now. It's what shapes how we live. Because we have hope, we must be holy. Let me talk more about God as both a father and a judge. There's a saying you might know, familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, the more we know something, the more likely we're to find fault and resentment toward that thing that we used to love. Uh, the phrase is usually attributed to a Roman author named Publilius Cyrus. If you're pregnant, just consider that as a baby name, uh, who lived around the time of Julius Caesar. Now, Cyrus was a slave who was eventually freed, and he became known for his witty moral teachings. It's actually ironic that he was a slave because this phrase, familiarity breeds contempt, was likely about the relationship between slaves and their masters. So Cyrus was saying, if you as a master, as you who, as an, as an employer, as you as a father, you who are any position of authority or whatsoever, if you allow your slaves and subjects to treat you with familiarity, to get to know you, if you're kind to them, rather than demanding their respect, they'll lose their respect for you. And this way of treating those who are beneath you became popular in English nobility. It's still popular today in corporate American culture. You know, how's a boss supposed to treat his employees? Fear is the way to get people to obey you, not love. Or maybe we could go the Michael Scott route from the office. Would I rather be feared or loved? Easy, both. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. Um, but God is not like that. See, the common view of authority in this world is that you should not get too close to those who are lower than you. Just keep your distance and send your holy commands toward them from down on high. But God does not create a false dichotomy in either or between love and fear. Rather, God loves us with a fearful love, and we should fear him in love as well. Because of that love, he wants what is best for us, like a father who loves his children well. And what is best for us is if we live life according to his ways rather than our own. So the point is this. God is both your father and your judge. He's not one or the other. He's both. He's not the harsh judge sending his commands from on high, but neither is he the cuddly, permissive dad who never tells his kids what is right and wrong, who never disciplines them so that they can learn how to live. One, in fact, one good question that you can ask yourself, if, am I growing in the love of God, is am I also growing in the fear of God, in a holy reverence for who he is, for his power and might and majesty? 
And by the same token, how do I know if I'm growing in obedience and fearful reverence of God is are you growing in intimacy and love with him? Are you respecting his authority? And is that authority leading you to love? Is his love leading you to fear? And so on and so on. One commentator wrote, the more truly, the more intimately we know him, the more of awe and reverence we shall feel. So God is our holy father and we are his children who imitate his family likeness. God is also our holy judge and we are exiles who live in fear and trembling. Both are true. And in Peter's mind, this is how we set our hope fully on future grace. You shall be holy, for I am holy. See, what Peter is describing is not a a passive waiting that expects Jesus to return, but we just kind of like twiddle our thumbs in the meantime. No, this passage really has an 80s workout video vibe to it. You know, come on, let's go. This is an energetic kind of active hope that seeks to do a holy life and and do what God tells us to do. It's an expectation of Jesus' second coming that rolls up its sleeves and says, what can I do now? How can I begin to take on the identity that will be fully mine when Jesus returns? So here's a principle that has the potential to change the way that you live and think about hope. There is so much of the kingdom of God for which we don't have to wait. There is so much of the kingdom of God for which we don't have to wait. Yes, we're waiting for Jesus to make all things new. Yes, we're waiting for sin and the devil and death to be defeated once and for all. Yes, we're waiting for our hearts to be fully conformed to the image of Christ so that there's perfect family resemblance between our Father and us. But according to the biblical authors, the kingdom of God came near when? In Jesus' first coming so that we could begin to experience new life right now. So Raquel, right now, you have the Holy Spirit within you to transform you and empower you for evangelism and holiness and mission. Right now, you can access the throne of grace as you pray to your Father. Right now, you can love your neighbor as yourself and proclaim the gospel to your neighbor so that they can experience new life too. Right now, you can feed the poor. You can welcome the stranger. You can serve the widow. You can speak out for justice. You can bless our city. Right now, this church can be a place of unique, holy love and affection and generosity and forgiveness and kindness like the world has never seen before. We're going to talk about that more next week. The kingdom of God is at hand, Rock Hill. It's not fully here, yes, of course, but it's here in truth. Our holiness, our our obedience to God's commands, living according to his ways, it's a trumpet call to the world, saying, do you want a picture of the new heavens and the new earth? I know it's a messy picture, but look at us. Not because of our greatness, because of what God is doing through us. Look through us and see a picture of the kingdom of Jesus. Yes, we're so, we're so flawed in so many ways. Yes, we're still killing sin, mortifying our flesh. Yes, we're waiting for the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But right now, we're a holy people because we serve a holy God who has declared us to be holy. Our work is not wasted because we declare, display, and delight in good news, which is the tangible expression of our hope. I love this promise in 1 John 3. It's one of my favorite verses. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. 
But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself now as he is pure. Because we have hope, we must be holy. We've seen the command to hope. We've seen the calling to holiness. Finally, let's turn and see the celebration of salvation starting in verse 18. Verse 18 is continuing the thought of the previous verse. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him. Peter concludes with a powerful declaration of the salvation that Jesus has secured for us. After just exhorting us to be holy like God is holy, he reminds us of the why behind our obedience. Remember way back at the beginning, we were talking about bad motivations for obedience, the, the earning rewards or avoiding punishment or simply to make a better world. But no, it's because of Jesus' past grace that gives us certain hope for his future grace, and that is our motivation for holiness. So Paul or Peter leads us to ask, what has Jesus done for us? What is all that Jesus has done for us? Verse 18, he has ransomed us, he's redeemed us, he's purchased us. This is Exodus language, slaves who were set free to serve a better king. But you and I, we weren't set free from Egypt, but rather from the feudal empty, meaningless ways inherited from our forefathers, the sins of all human beings that we got from our great-grandfather Adam. This is our self-centeredness, our pride, our autonomy from God, our will to define good and evil for ourselves. See, these ways claim to set you free. They claim this is how you become a true human being, is if you do it for yourself, you do what you want to do, but the serpent lied to us. They only enslaved us. How do we get free from that slavery? Jesus paid our debts, and he did so not with things as cheap and worthless as silver and gold. Really, you think that's valuable? No. The only thing that could pay our ransom, verse 19, is the precious blood of a perfect sacrifice. Jesus lived the life he sh we should have lived, and he died the just death that we deserve. See, the, the Father who judges impartially according to everyone's deeds he didn't do that for Jesus. He didn't judge Jesus according to his deeds, because if he had, there would be no fault to find. But instead, he judged Jesus based on our deeds. And so the Lamb of God without blemish or spot was beaten and flogged and stripped naked and hung upon a dirty cross. But verse 20, this was the plan all along. From even before the world was created, God knew he would die for you. For the sake of you, Jesus became incarnate. For the sake of you, he would die. And for the sake of you, he would rise from the dead and return to glory. So what do we do now? Verse 21, now we believe. We've seen God raise the dead. He can do it again for us. He can really offer us the eternal life that he says because he doesn't break his promises. He can do it just like he did with Jesus. And now we have faith in the present, faith even amidst our suffering. 
and we have hope for the future. This, this whole section is just one big celebratory song of salvation. These wouldn't be bad verses to commit to memory if you need to remind yourself of all that Jesus has done for you. It summarizes our salvation, and it reminds us that we can set our hope fully on God because he's already been faithful to us. He's already been faithful to us. There's a wonderful scene in the Gospel of Luke after Jesus was resurrected. He appears suddenly to his disciples, his best friends, the people who are following him for years. They saw him teach and do amazing things, but then they watched him die. And I can only imagine the disciples seeing Jesus gasp for breath and bleed out on a cross that their hope crumbled. When Jesus died, all their hopes for a Savior, for a Messiah, that died too. And so it's understandable that when Jesus shows up three days later, they're shocked to see him. They think he's a ghost. But he says, what are you worried about? It, it's me. Touch me. Here, let me give you a hug. It's really me. And they still don't believe it. Neither would you. So Jesus says, well, do you have anything to eat here? It's an understandable question. If you've been dead for three days, you'd be hungry too. But it's also a demonstration. And so Luke tells us that they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it before them. And while Jesus munches, he explains why they never should have lost hope. You can kind of imagine him, like, in between bites. You should have seen this coming. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Do you see what he, he did there? He told them, you should have seen this coming. It was foretold. I was foreknown. This plan was made long before the world was even created that I was going to die and suffer. But now let's look towards the future. Because now you have hope, and you get to spread that hope to everyone else. He commissions the disciples. He, he sends the Holy Spirit to empower their work and to continue to renew their hearts in the image of Christ until he returns. Now, I share that story because their story mirrors our story. We are the disciples who need to remember our hope. We are the disciples who so often functionally, daily, wake up as though Jesus isn't coming back. We just forget. It's not like we, who are Christians, believe that Jesus is still dead. It's just that he's far away. That he's irrelevant. We are the disciples who need to remember that God keeps his promises. He kept his promises before. He'll keep his promises in the future. Jesus lived, died, and rose again so that you can set your hope fully on the day when he returns. You can build your house on this. This rock will never crumble. This hope is 100% certain it's going to happen. Clear-eyed, sober-minded, preparing, ready, alert, deeply committed to living like our Holy Father as his holy children. So Christian, you are no longer enslaved by the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers. You are lifted out of hopelessness. You are lifted out of a life with no future. You are lifted out of a life where the future is uncertain. You are lifted out of despair and ignorance and sin. You've been set on the rock that is hope in Christ. That's where you're standing right now. 
I want to end with a parable that Jesus taught in Luke 12. There's a lot of common language between this passage and the parable, and maybe it was even on Peter's mind as he was writing this passage, as he was remembering and thinking about the lessons from his rabbi. Jesus said, stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. You also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Rock Hill, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. But we know, we know, we know he will come soon. He hasn't broken a promise yet. So let's be ready. Let's stay awake. Let's get up for work in the morning, knowing that what we are doing now is bringing the experience of the kingdom to our families, to the fields of medicine and education and construction and insurance and real estate and graphic design and so on. Let's kill our sin and our wicked habits because it's not the way that our Holy Father and Judge and the Son has ransomed us from these ways. Let's cast aside all the things that deaden our hope, the things that crush our hope, whether it's endlessly doom-scrolling on your phone or just mindlessly going back again and again to the hurts, habits, and hang-ups that make us forget that Jesus is coming back soon. What helps you remember? What keeps you awake? Let's love our neighbor and tell them the good news because our world needs the hope that Jesus offers. Let's be ready because we have hope. Let's begin to experience eternal life now. Let me pray for the Lord's help to keep us awake. Father God, holy judge, you know us completely. You know our hearts are still fraught with sin you know we suffer. You know we so often don't have hope. Set us on the rock, Father, because you sent your Son. Jesus, come back soon. Come back soon. And until then, keep us awake. Help us to be ready, sober-minded, and to never waver from that hope. Fill us with passion for holiness, for living according to your word and your ways. Show us what that way is because we so often wander from it. Have mercy on us. We pray this in the name of Jesus who is coming back soon. Amen. We're going to turn now to the communion table. On the week of the Passover, the righteous lamb took bread and wine and he said, these are the symbols of your ransom. And then just a day later, Jesus died as the sacrifice for our futile ways. But while he was in that upper room explaining the Lord's Supper, he told his disciples that one day we'll eat a feast with him when he returns. So this is a practice for all Christians to celebrate our salvation, to remind ourselves of our calling to holiness, and to live as people of hope. If you're here this morning and you don't believe that Jesus is your Savior, I'll ask you not to take communion because I would much rather you take what Jesus actually offers you which is eternal life and a living hope. But if you're not there yet, there's no judgment or shame if you stay in your seat. That's okay. We're glad you're here. If you are a person of hope, though, if you have a living hope, 
And you can come forward down the center aisles. There will be a gluten-free station in the middle. This is our remembrance, that we are people of hope and holiness. Let me pray while the people who are serving communion come forward, and then we'll take communion together. Jesus, thank you for your body and blood. Thank you for purchasing us with them. Thank you for not staying dead, but for rising again, really and truly, for ascending to heaven where you are on the throne right now. We long for you to return, but in the meantime, we will eat and drink to remember the Lord's death and his coming. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who is coming again. Amen.